0: I was always kind of a dreamer as a kid, right? And like most people here, uh, you gotta plan for your life. You're always asked the million dollar question, what do you wanna do when you grow up? And my entire life I had one answer, not ministry. That's literally all I knew about my life. Uh, I grew up in a very Christian, awesome, loving, wonderful, gospel-centered home. My dad was a youth pastor. We literally shared backyards with a church. We lived in a parsonage uh, is what that's called. Uh, It was really, really fun. Our house was just a revolving door of the youth group coming in and out whenever they wanted. It was like a giant family. And so more church in my life was not something I was seeking out, but when you start following Jesus. Sometimes when you give him the keys to your life, he might take you in a direction that you are not always expecting. I didn't know what I wanted to do, honestly. I didn't know if I wanted to play soccer as a professional, work for Red Bull, some kind of artist, I don't know, something fun. All I know is I didn't wanna do ministry, especially youth ministry. So God's got a great sense of humor. I am honored to be here today. And this passage is crazy in Matthew 16. But if you are anything like me, and if you are somebody who likes to make plans for your life, and you find yourself following Jesus, you might be here today and not know what your next step is. If you're somebody who likes to have plans for your life, and you have actually given the keys over to Jesus, sometimes things start to take a turn, and you have no idea where you're actually going. I showed up here, like Mark said, about seven years ago as a freshman at Iowa. Uh, I realized that deciding to come here to Veritas and going to Salt Company and kind of jumping into that world, I kind of realized that it was a pretty uncomfortable decision. That the more you actually sit in these chairs, the more, not comfortable you get necessarily, but actually sometimes the more uncomfortable you get. Sometimes you start to think you have a plan and you know where life is going, but you start to show up here and you start to actually sit under the word of God. Right, and you start to have these collisions with the gospel and with the living God and his spirit starts to hit you week in and week out and he's sharing truth, and people are speaking it over you, and you start to realize, I don't actually know where my life is going, but I think this is worth it. I feel like I'm being drawn into a wild ride, and I guess here goes nothing. That's what my last seven years have kind of felt like, sitting exactly where you're sitting, week in and week out, worshiping with the the band every week, and just feeling the Spirit leading in crazy ways. This has happened to some of you as well. I cannot tell you how many people I know coming up to this college ministry who aren't just, you know, looking for the best job after college anymore. They show up to Iowa to get into the business school, to get a good job, to make a lot of money. That's like 99% of people's goal. But so many people, when you see them come here and you see them collide with the living God, their plans change. And I have so many friends, so many brothers and sisters who are, not looking for the best job anymore. Actually, their first priority is going where there's a church plant. Their first priority is looking around at what God's doing in this family, not just in Iowa City and Tiffin or whatever, but like, oh, we're planning up in Minneapolis? Yeah, I'm there. And so they drop everything, they transfer. They find a job there just so they can be a part of the mission of God. Or they go down to Florida or they go back to Ames or something, or maybe they're, like you said, like Akua and the teams this summer, moving to China because God is worth it. That whatever plans that we might have had for our lives coming into college, or even just walking in here this morning, that when we are encountered with God, when the living God kind of starts to weasel his way into our lives, our grip starts to loosen a little bit. And as our view of God gets bigger and bigger, our plans for ourselves sometimes grow smaller and smaller. When the living God collides with people like us, people like me, our lives actually start to change. And here's the big idea today. God has a better plan for your life than you do. No matter how noble and well thought out and well prepared that you might be, no matter how big your dreams are or important your goals might seem in your life, when we give the keys to Jesus and he takes us on his path, even the bleakest and most surprising, confusing, hardest times that this life can throw at us, God continually reveals himself as somebody who is very, very powerful, who is big, majestic and wonderful and worthy of all of our allegiance, but he also reveals himself through his word as somebody who loves us far more than we could ever, ever imagine. And, and we see in the scripture so often, you know, like God is reassuring you over and over and over again. Hey, I actually know the plans I have for you. I know that when you're following me, the plans I have for you, they're actually to, to prosper you, not to harm you. They're gonna give you like a hope and a future or that every single thing in your life, don't worry, I love you, and I'm orchestrating all of them for your good and for my glory. We know that this is the God that we're introduced to every single week. We can trust his plans for our life as they unfold. And my question for you this morning is, have you actually experienced that? Do you actually have the type of relationship with Jesus where your, like, your vice grip on your life plans have kind of like started to loosen up And you've seen the path that Jesus is bringing you onto. Do you actually believe that if God was the one who is planning your life, if he's the one who is in control of today in five years and 10 years, all the way to your dying day, do you actually believe that he is good enough to give the keys to your life? Do you actually believe that following Jesus is worth it today? God has a better plan for your life than you do. And today we actually need to see what that plan is. This morning, we didn't need to know what that plan is and we actually need to know how we're going to live this life. Maybe not uberly specifically for you, but as the general Christian who wants to follow Jesus, what is the plan that God is calling us into? What is God saying broadly to all of us in his word today that he's actually drawing us to do? We need to know that it really starts, like many of you have taken, it really starts, you know this, it starts with that simple step of faith not getting your act together and doing all the right things so that God approves you, but he, he calls us to faith, a step. But what we re- really need to realize after this, where are we stepping onto? Like what is that path that God is calling us to step onto? And finally, what does it actually look like for us to run wholeheartedly with passion and zeal until the end of that finish line when we meet him face to face? So let's dive into Matthew 16. We're gonna see a conversation uh, that Jesus has with about this exact same question, this exact same idea that He actually might have a better plan for the lives of us and His disciples than we could have imagined, and so we're in Matthew 16. I'm going to read verses 13 through 24. Us as we get started. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, "Who do the people say that the Son of Man is?" And they said, "Some say John the Baptist." Others, Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's great news. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged them to tell no one about this. He told them not to tell anybody that he was the Christ. God's plan for your life, very simply, guys, it starts with that step of faith. That's what we see. There's lots going on here. This is like a very, very loaded, rich passage. But let's start with this question. Let's kind of zoom in to the very beginning. Why in the world does Jesus use this title for himself? Look at it, the son of man. Who do people say that the son of man is? If you actually look through the gospels and you read all four of them, you are gonna realize Jesus actually refers to himself as the son of man more than any other title. We have to know that, that, that it's important if this is actually what Jesus, he's not calling himself king. He's not calling himself like, hey, you need to call me Lord all the time. You need to call me God explicitly. No, he starts out by saying, son of man. Why does he do this? Well, honestly, son of man literally just means like human. Like son of Adam, right? Son of man, this really just means human. So it's really not that special of a term unless we see it in the context of the entire Bible, right? Unless we kind of zoom out and see why might Jesus specifically be using this title to refer to himself, and so the significance of Jesus calling himself that is actually in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. An Old Testament prophet, Daniel, in chapter 7, specifically in verse 13, this is actually what it says. Daniel has a dream I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, when Jesus is referring to himself as a son of man here, and all these other times in the Gospels. He's not just wanting us to notice that he's a human, he's wanting us to think about this particular divine human in Daniel seven. What's happening in Daniel's vision, it's kind of confusing, there's a lot, Daniel's a really cool book, but there's coming a day when one with the appearance of a human is actually gonna be presented in front of the Ancient of Days, this eternal, perfect, holy God. And the son of man was not like other men, he was actually divine instead of being judged before the king like any other human would as they were coming and being presented before the king, this man was actually given the keys. He was actually given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Instead of being judged, he was giving all that would be owed to a king. All peoples and nations and languages should actually serve him and his rule actually never end. All the evil authority in the world, all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the pain, and all that we see that is messed up is going to be reversed and made right and set in order by this person. This is the ultimate hope for the world. Daniel 7 has had incredibly deep, profound, religious, Jewish, Jewish implications throughout time, and these disciples knew it. They would be thinking when they heard Jesus call himself the son of man, yeah, he's calling himself a human, but what if there's something below that? What if there's something more? He asked them what the crowds are saying, right? Like the people that he's doing miracles in front of and teaching all these good things. He said, hey, what are those people saying about me? And they say, well, he seems pretty special. they are giving him pretty high praise, right? He's a fantastic human prophet. Maybe even a reincarnation of one of the dead guys that our parents taught us about he seems pretty important. And they recognize Jesus as a man, but they have failed. The crowds have failed to recognize Jesus, Jesus as the full meaning, the full depth of the term son of man. And Jesus doesn't let his disciples just relax. Like, who do they say I am? No, no, He flips the question on him, doesn't he? Look, he says, who do you say that I am? So here's this really weighty question, like, hey, who do they say the son of man is? But I don't actually care what the crowd says. Right now, I actually care about what you say. I don't care about what your religious professors and all that say or what background you come from. I'm looking you right in the eyes, Jesus said, in your chair today and saying, who do you actually say that the son of man is? And you can feel the tension in their circle. It's like this guy we've been following, right? He seems a little more important than just a prophet. He was like worth us dropping our professions and our families and following and giving our lives to but I don't know if I have the guts to like just step out and say, this guy is God. I don't think that I can say that this guy is the divine one that we read about and we've been waiting for from Daniel 7. That'd be blasphemy. What if I'm wrong? What if he's not that? What if I've missed it? You can feel the tension rise as they're all looking around saying, who actually has the guts to say that this is God standing in front of them? Peter, that too. It's always Peter. Who has the guts? Who is gonna be bold and kind of stupid and put himself out there? It's Peter. And in true Peter form, he opens his mouth and drops these words of pure, profound faith. Look at verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Others can say you're a prophet or a moral moral teacher all day. I don't care. I believe that you are the son of man that Daniel 7 was alluding to. I believe that you are God incarnate. You are God with flesh and you can hear a pin drop, can't you? Somebody said it. Somebody just went for it. Somebody just took that that step of faith that none of us were willing to take. Peter actually said it. What was Jesus going to say in response? How was Jesus gonna respond to this? I think he responds in a way that even uh, surprised all of these disciples. Look at verse 17, blessed are you, Peter. Blessed are you, Peter. What you just said, Peter, that I am this son of man from Daniel, that I am God in the flesh. I am this divine one you've been waiting for. That is so amazing that you said that. That is so profound that you were just simply believing that to be true, that it had to be from God. Nobody else, no other human mind or eyes seem to be able to see that, but God has revealed that to you. He has turned on the light in your heart and you are seeing me for who I truly am. God's plan for your life starts with a new faith in Jesus because only when God reveals to you who Jesus is will he be worth following with everything you have. Prophets, teachers, impressive people, pastors, whatever, they're gonna come and they're gonna go Forever. But this Jesus, this Jesus is actually truly the one that you've been waiting for. Look how Jesus lavishly responds to someone who has a simple faith. Don't, don't lose this, guys. Verse 18 and 19, he's like, Peter, I'm gonna, use, Peter literally means like little stone, like a rock. And, and he's, he's playing on his name. He's saying, I'm actually gonna use a faith like this, Peter. No matter how much you mess up in your life or how much you do not deserve what I'm giving you, I am going to give you through faith a purpose, and I'm going to build up people like you, people who come together in faith. I'm going to build you up in this thing called the church, and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against this church that has faith in me, the son of man, and he continues to go on. Remember in Daniel 7 that this king, this son of man was given everything, the dominion and the rule and the power. Now that son of man is looking at Peter, The failure that is full of faith that he's saying, I am giving you the keys to that exact kingdom. That is insane. If you've you've been in the church for five minutes, you know Peter is like a big deal. He's like one of Jesus' closest disciples, followers, friends. But if you've been in the church any moment longer than five minutes, like six, you know Peter is just a disaster. That he is going to be messing up in the upcoming chapters that we're going to read about. He's going to like run away from Jesus and like be afraid of a teenage girl who calls him out for following Jesus. Peter is a coward. But Jesus, knowing full and well that Peter does not have the merit to earn the kingdom of God, looks at his simple faith and says, yes, this is what it's all about. A little bit of faith and a very powerful God goes a very long way. And if you are going to follow me, Christian, person, if you want to follow me, it is going to start not with your own merit and works, but just a simple step of faith. But the question as we, as we move on is, what path are we stepping onto? Like if Jesus is saying, hey, take that step, where are we actually stepping? Okay, let's keep reading. Look at this. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed. And on the third day be raised, and Peter Again, here he comes. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to him, get behind me, Satan. Jeesh, you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Jesus' plan for his followers starts with faith that promises a fantastic reward. Jesus' followers are gonna be given a fantastic reward through this faith, but what is the path that they're stepping on? God has a better plan for our lives, and that plan goes on, and it puts you on a new path. Is Jesus the one you've been waiting for? Yes. But what does that actually mean for your life? According to Peter and the disciples, obviously it meant political, religious, economic conquest. It was like, you are going to make all things right. We know that to be true if you are indeed who you say you are. And so when Jesus unrolls this plan, he says, actually, don't tell anybody who I am. Instead, instead of receiving a crown right now, I'm actually going to take a different path than what you're expecting. I'm actually gonna choose the path of the cross I'm actually gonna choose the path of suffering and being tortured to death. Yes, I am the son of God. Yes, I am the divine one you've been waiting for, but I choose this path and it is no other way. If you were to follow me, this is what it will look like. And they were confused, as you should be. Peter's like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, no, 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 I think you've got it all wrong, Jesus. And I think G, uh, Peter, out of love for Jesus, like, no, 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 you don't know what you're talking about, maybe. Like, I love you, I don't want you to go through these things. But I think there was even more than that that Peter was pushing back on. Peter knew that if he was going to follow this man to the cross, if he was gonna be on that path with him, he knew that it wouldn't just be Jesus' life at stake, it would be his own. He knew, the same Peter who just was promised all of this blessing and praise, is now sitting here looking at the one who is blessing him, God in the flesh, and is saying, do I, act, do, I, do I actually want this? Like, is this actually the path that God would have? I thought you were supposed to bring your people up. I thought you were supposed to bring our political climate up to the top. I thought you were supposed to bring conquest and peace and make all this wrong. I didn't think you were going to be killed by the religious leaders that I thought were on our side. God's plan for your life puts you on a new path. And Peter in true form, man, just couldn't seem to hack it. He rebukes him. This cannot be right. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not actually setting your things, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just verses after saying, God has revealed to you this divine wisdom and beautiful insight that I am the son of God. He quickly has turned to say, now you are thinking like a man again. You would have me go to the throne before a cross, but I'm telling you that's not the way it is. When God reveals himself to us, we respond in faith, faith that brings us to this new path. No plan that you possibly have for your life, no plan that I possibly have for my life could ever measure up to the promise of the extravagant blessings that the king of the universe would shower upon us. But at the same time, no path that you would ever pick for your life would come colliding head on with a gruesome torture device like a cross, would it? And so we need to keep reading as we finish this off and see God's plan for our life actually calling us to a new walk. He's called us to a step of faith onto this daunting path. And now he goes on as he finishes his passage to explain to us and his disciples what it will actually look like to walk on that path. Verse 24, he says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. in his kingdom. Very explicitly, Jesus tells us what this new path of following him, what this walk is actually going to look like. Denying yourself and taking up your cross. Why would he tell us to do that? What does it mean that whoever would lose their life for my sake would find it? What does it mean that whoever would save his life or try to at least would actually lose it? This is what Jesus means. There is no treasure. There is no pleasure that you could ever find in this life that will ever compare to the resurrection. There is no achievements or accomplishments that you can ever earn in this life on your own. Nothing that you will do will ever follow you into the next life. Nothing that you could ever hold in your hands will be there when you wake up from death. There's not one possession that you own that's more valuable than your soul because in fact your soul is the only thing following you into eternity. And Jesus wants to get our eyes off of what is in our hands and what is surrounding us and see what actually matters. That is why Jesus tells us to pick up our cross. To put it simply, taking up your cross is running towards Jesus as your ultimate treasure, even if it means sacrificing earthly treasure. Picking up your cross is seeing Jesus as the most valuable thing that you could ever have, the most valuable relationship or inheritance that you could ever possess. And so you run towards Him with a cross on your back, following in His likeness, because you know that if anything in this life threatens that, it is not worth having. What does it mean for us to take up our cross? What does it actually look like for us to deny ourselves what's best on this earth? if it means getting something better in Jesus. It's easy. What, you walk over to Veritas Kids, what, what does it like look like? For, for somebody in Veritas Kids to, like, hey, give me a lollipop. You're like, no. And they start crying. And you're like, they don't understand that their parents are taking them to a feast at Pizza Ranch and they don't want to ruin their appetite. Look at the pretz. <laughs> they, they can't see past this immediate lollipop. But more seriously, you're a high schooler and all of your friends and influences, all the people that you thought had your back your entire life are trying to draw you into drinking and to do like some drugs and stuff that you never thought you would actually even see and you don't even know what it is but they're telling you how to do it and you don't want to do it because you know that following Jesus is actually better and you know you're going to get made fun of. You know you're gonna have just rebuke and and scorn at school and you might lose everything that you possibly have. And all it takes to gain the world is one sip, but you know that following Jesus is better. Is that what it looks like to take up your cross? Maybe you're a college student who actually has realized, hey, I have same-sex attraction. Hey, I have these desires that are very, very much real. But as I look in the Bible, I don't see God permitting that. And actually, if I'm gonna follow Jesus and take up my cross, maybe that means for the rest of my life, I will not be able to act on my desires that seemingly everybody else gets to do. Is Jesus that worth it for you? Is that what it looks like for you to take up your cross? Maybe you're out of college and you're single and you're bored and you don't know what to do with yourself and you're seeing all these ministry opportunities, but, but you actually are treasuring this human relationship and this plan that you have for your future more than what God might have for you. Does it look like changing your perspective and putting your priorities in order? Does it look like serving the church even while you're alone? Is that your cross? Maybe you're a parent. A young parent or something, maybe you have kids for a long time, and you're realizing as you are hearing the word of God and studying this for yourself, that making disciples is of infinite value, and you are seeing little disciples being raised in your family. But the problem is you don't have time for that. At least you don't have time for that and whatever else you want to do. Maybe it means like putting to death your hobbies so that you can invest in the next generation. Maybe it looks like loving your kids with time. Is that your cross? Or maybe you're an empty nester and you're seeing the end of the road, and you're seeing all this retirement stuff coming up and you're like, this is what I've been working for for so many years. But like said, I'm in a context all of a sudden where there's like stuff on a window that I don't totally get. But one thing I do get is there's a lot of energy and young people around here that I can invest in with my time and with my money. And you know what? Maybe I'm gonna sacrifice some of my comfort in my retirement plan that I've been planning for so many years. And I'm gonna put my money and my time my relationships and something that's worth it? What does it look like for you to take up your cross? My point is this, no matter who you are in here today, your cross is heavy. Peter would actually be called to literally take up his cross and follow Jesus. and claiming to be unworthy to suffer and die the same death that Jesus died, Jesus asked, or Peter asked to be hung upside down. Very few of us in here, probably zero, are going to actually have to take up a literal cross and follow Jesus. But what it actually looks like to deny yourself and for me to deny myself and take up our cross is not as much denial as it is just saying no to a lesser pleasure for something far greater. Christianity is so often painted as a religion of rules and abstinence where if you don't do this, you will be rewarded. But that is completely false and a very slippery slope. Christianity, following Jesus, is about pursuing with more passion the greatest treasures and pleasures that this life could never give you. But Jesus is holding and waiting for you to receive. Peter seems justified by this, for this rebuke, right? He's like, no, 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 Jesus, you don't get it. You could just snap your fingers and take the throne. Take up your war horse and claim it. But Jesus is saying that there's no throne without first a cross. Jesus calls Peter Satan. After a few verses earlier, just like applauding his divine insight because he's not thinking like God. Jesus calls him Satan because he's so concerned with the things of this world that he can't possibly stomach the idea of the goodness that Jesus is promising him. Peter can't even begin to imagine the true glory of the resurrection. Because of this resurrection, we today can actually trust Jesus with our lives. Because of the resurrection, we can trust Jesus with our lives. Why a cross before a crown? is like a seed asking, why must I be buried before I can grow into a mighty oak? Because past this short 100 years of life that we might have, Max, there is an eternity of glory after a resurrection that we cannot fathom. Because of the resurrection, we can actually be this church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Does that excite your life that you are sitting here in a church that hopes and believes and prays that? That these gates of hell, generally speaking, I mean, this might be looking too much into it, but aren't gates supposed to keep people out? It's not like an offensive thing. Like We're not like this insulated room here where we're just trying to keep out the evil. No, like Mark said, we are sending people out towards the gates of hell together, arm in arm, because that's what the church is made to do. Does your life have that much purpose? Does our church act on that purpose? Are we a dangerous, confident people that no matter what happens in this life, we will meet Jesus in the resurrection? Because of the resurrection, we have purpose that hell will not overcome. Because of the resurrection, we can open up the close, vice grip of our hands, squeezing our life plans, and we can actually start dreaming of the joys of heaven knowing that we are following Jesus there, because Jesus actually rose from the dead after destroying the powers of death. And we can look forward to verse 27 here, when the son of man is going to come in glory and angels. And he won't actually repay us for the evil that we've done. He won't repay us for the good that we did not do. He will welcome us in as children because of our faith in him and he is who he says he was. And so when we're confronted with this today, when we're looking at the, the, the plan, the path that Jesus would lay out for the Christian to take that step of faith, to, to look at that path, and then to start running with our cross on our back, no matter what life throws at us, on our back, running towards a greater joy. I don't think the tone of this passage should be, now are you sure you wanna do this, right? I I don't want it to be like, oh man, this actually Christianity is a lot harder than I thought. Like following Jesus, I thought it was supposed to be, I thought it was supposed to make life a lot better and easier. But you're saying following Jesus looks really hard. Are you sure you want this? I don't, that, I don't actually think that's the tone of this passage. It's not, are you sure you want to follow Jesus? The tone of this passage is how could you not want to follow Jesus? How could we ever live for what's right in front of us when what Jesus has for us is that much better? God has a better plan for your life than you do. So Veritas, let's take up our crosses and follow him just like Jesus did, scorning the shame, but looking forward to the joy that was set before him, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this son of man is gonna come down with the angels in the glory of his father. And he's gonna take us home. And the only thing we will have left is him. And that is all we're ever gonna need forever. Praise God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you chose a cross. Thank you so much that the life that you wanted to give us was better than just this life on steroids. It was better than just all of the greatest things we could think of on this earth. It's actually so good that like a seed, you want us to be planted. You want us to die so that we could experience the true, eternal, joy-filled, glorious, resurrected life with you. And God, this, this life is hard. There's so many unexpected things, so many illnesses and circumstances and just hardships that we do not choose for ourselves. That this life is so hard that we would never wish this upon our worst enemy, but we're living in it right now. And God, I pray for the heavenly perspective of God the Father, that we would see this life and all of its struggles as an opportunity to take up our cross and follow Jesus that nobody would have the same type of suffering that, that Jesus had, that he suffered so profoundly and was cut off from that eternal relationship with his father so that he could resonate with us, that he could sympathize with us, and so that we can know he is actually sitting right next to us today saying, I know it's heavy, but keep going. And God, I pray for the perspective that our yoke and our burden that you give us would feel light today. And that our tone would not be, are we sure we want to follow Jesus? But how could we not? Knowing that we are offered a pleasure and a treasure and a savior far greater than anything we could own on our own merit. Amen.